Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. The metrics I feel that we should be focused on SPF professionals is outcomes. What happened as a result of the campaign event? Did it lead to more sales? Did it lead to more leads generated? Did you recruit as many people that you set out to initiate? Did you change your audience's behavior? Are they tangibly doing something different as a result of your communications? So we should always be asking ourselves the so what question. So what happened as a result of my campaign? So what happened as a result of my program? Welcome, listeners, to the Misinterpreted podcast. I'm Mary Beth West, Senior Strategist at Fletcher Marketing PR, in for Kelly today. Our topic is going to be PR metrics and nudge theory. And we're very proud to welcome a special guest to the conversation from the public relations professional community across the pond in the United Kingdom, Shayoni Lynn. Shai holds the industry designations in the UK as FCIPR, and that's fellow of the Chartered Institute of Public Relations and CMPRCA, and most recently worked on staff in a communications post with Cardiff University, where she continues to hold associate lecturer status. Shai and our team here at Fletcher PR all share affiliation in the UK-based Public Relations and Communications Association, or PRCA, which includes more than 35,000 members globally in the public relations profession. And of course, in in recent months, Fletcher PR has joined PRCA. We also aired our two-part interview with PRCA's Director General, Francis Ingham, fascinating leader and interview subject. So be sure to tune in to Francis's two-part interview with us available now on our episode roster. We've also gotten a lot of positive feedback on what Francis shared in that interview. Listeners definitely tune into that. Shai does hold numerous leadership positions, including serving as chair of the Wales PRCA group of fellow public relations professionals there in the UK. In addition, Shai is an industry expert in data development and insight-driven communications, strategic stakeholder engagement, measurement, and evaluation. Her expertise spans numerous behavioral science topics, including the emerging area of nudge communications. Now, nudge theory has received quite a bit of industry play in Europe, but possibly maybe less so here in the U.S., so it's particularly timely to have Shai with us as a subject matter expert in this area to help shed light for us and for our U.S.-based listeners in particular. Shai is also a regular speaker at industry events in Europe. Last year, she was recognized in the Wales 35 Under 35 list of top young professional and business women in Wales. And here in 2020, just in recent weeks, Shai's firm, Lynn PR, was named One to Watch in 2020 by PR Week UK. So congratulations to Shai on these fantastic distinctions and also on launching her own consulting practice, Lynn PR, specializing in strategic communications with a behavioral approach, which is, of course, right up our alley here at Fletcher PR as well, particularly in marketing to women and motivating call to action. So Shai is the perfect guest for us to have as we look at behavioral metrics and best practices. Without further ado here, welcome Shai to Misinterpreted. 
Thank you so much for having me, Mary Beth, and for those kind words. I'm so excited to be joining you from the UK. It is uh, a Friday evening. The sun is not shining, as it usually doesn't (laughs) in Wales. But (laughs) I am delighted to join you and to um, speak to uh, colleagues in the US via this podcast. Um, I do listen to your podcast regularly. It's an absolute pleasure to be be a guest on it. Thank you. Well, we appreciate you and uh, just have enjoyed following all of your thought leadership over there in the UK. And I know that you have a following of your own on social media and with a lot of the research that you've done. We would love for you to um, kick things off, Shai, by telling us a little bit more about yourself. For example, we learned earlier that you were born in India and have lived in Wales for about 10 years, if, if I have that detail correct. We uh, just would love to learn more about your earlier professional path that brought you to this point of now being a widely noted researcher and emerging leader in the global profession. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm originally from India, as you've, uh, as you've said. So I used to work in print and broadcast journalism back in India. I moved to the UK over 10 years ago to complete my master's in international journalism, also from Cardiff University. And um, I then went on to run a news desk for an online newspaper in Cardiff and, and also worked in a lot of B2B and B2C organizations. Mm. And in that space, I was working across public relations, communications, events management, to quite a wide portfolio. Right. Um, and in 2014, yeah, in 2014, I then started working at Cardiff University's alumni relations and fundraising department. So going back to where I studied, which is really nice. Um, and within a few years, you know, we had repositioned the communications team from being a service delivery unit to a trusted strategic partner that was working towards delivering organization outcomes. So very quickly, then, the success of this program led us to being recognized as um, a sector leading in our use of data, in our use of data-driven insights and insights-driven strategy. So we were doing loads of work, understanding our audiences, what motivates them, what influences them, and critically, what stops them from taking action. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, really exciting, really interesting. And obviously, the program was skyrocketing in terms of the engagement we had from our audiences. We were the only alumni relations uh, communications program in the country using behavioral science to nudge our audiences to positive behaviors and action. Oh, that's very and, interesting. Um, yeah. And, and outside of my work at Cardiff Universities, as you said, I'm also deeply involved with the PR and communications community in the UK. I'm very, um, very passionate about promoting confidence and capability within our profession. I feel one of the reasons that people don't use a lot of data in their program is simply a lack of confidence, and they may be scared of those numbers and what they mean and what they tell you. So I've done a lot of work in the last few years about building capability and building confidence within colleagues to better understand and use data when setting their strategy, measuring outcomes, and to implement what might be um, deemed counterintuitive or irrational solutions by using this theory and other behavioral science concepts. Well, and and that dovetails directly into how you've started your own consulting practice and really, again, very excited about this new business that you've started and how you've integrated some of that work and helping to educate people about the power of not only public relations, but also data and information-driven strategies. I'd love for you to tell us just a little bit more about your consulting practice and the process of getting that started, what some of the initial projects that you've been working on. Yeah, so I set up an NPR 
um, last year, actually. So I was doing it part-time whilst I was at Cardiff University um, and then sort of uh, made the decision to move full-time into the role um, in November. So we've been going full-time from November. So we are a strategic communications consultancy that leverages data and behavioral insights to deliver communications and campaigns with organizational impact. So what we do is we help communications professionals boost their skills in understanding their audiences and using behavioral interventions to strengthen their calls to action. We create content that works. We ensure that we create content where audiences will pay attention, where they will engage with your messages, and most importantly, where they take action. Right. I'm um, fortunate, and yeah, I'm fortunate to be working with a range of clients um, from universities to the NHS, um, and that's the National Healthcare Service here in the UK. Ah. I also work with government bodies um, like the Office of the Public Guardian and Health Education and Improvement Wales. I'm also working on a a behaviour change campaign for the NHS where we are looking to get more citizens to access flu vaccinations this winter. So we've undertaken enormous research to understand these target audiences. We've run behavioural audits, focus groups, informal discussions, face-to-face and qualitative surveys, online surveys, the whole shebang. And we're using these insights to understand with forensic precision what barriers exist that are stopping our audiences from taking action. And in this case, of course, it's action that's very good for them to get vaccinated and not get the flu over winter. These insights inform the identification and development of behavioral interventions that we can implement during the campaign to move our audiences towards positive action. So there's a lot of testing involved, a lot of data analysis, but ultimately it's about delivering content and campaigns that add value to organizations. Well, and I think that it sounds like the kind of work that you've been doing, especially in the health care and health awareness arena, that has to be very satisfying work, knowing that you're helping Absolutely. to yeah, mm-hmm. ad- advance a good mm-hmm. social outcome mm-hmm. in your in, in mm-hmm. your country. And of course, that leads me a bit into this area of nudge theory. You know, the first time I came across your name was on Elementi's Power and Influence chat earlier uh. <laughs> last year. You were the featured guest. Right. And, yes. And so it was really interesting because that was the first I'd really, certainly it was the first time I'd had an introduction to your work. And I was so impressed by everything that you were putting forward in terms of these Thank ideas you. and you know the concept behind nudge theory. So I'd love for you to tell our audience what nudge theory is by definition, and also what should public relations professionals, regardless of where they're based, what should they know about nudge theory, and especially with Mm -hmm. respect to incorporating nudge theory into their campaigns? Absolutely. So before we do that, I just want to reflect a bit about us as a a species. So as a human race, you know, we've been nudging each other for as long as we've existed. So we are constantly persuading and influencing people around us. But if you think about it, when it comes to our programs and policies, we instead prefer to view our world through a very rational and a very logical lens. And so but the reality is that as a species, we have both conscious and unconscious motivations. So the things we do decisively, um, you know, like fill out a tax form or compare the merits of two products for overall value. And then there are things that we do instinctively, like detect that one object is more different than another, get perception, or understand sentences in the languages 
we speak so I'm speaking now and I'm hoping that not everyone is having to exert a lot of mental acumen to understand <laughs> what I'm saying <laughs> and it's just like our body has um, automatic processes so you know our heart keeps pumping blood into our veins we breathe without noticing it so does our mind and the reality is that we make majority of our daily decisions using our brain's automatic processes but we yet continue to refuse to acknowledge that this is the case and we want to view this work with the lens of rationality, logic and efficiency. You know, if we were to open our minds, if we were to consider that like many, the many, many decisions that we make instinctively. So for example, Meredith, what's two plus two? Four. Four, right? Yeah, exactly. And that came to you instinctively, because right. it's not. <laughs> and that's, that's your automatic brain and acting right there. <laughs> I always ask this question. It always catches people up because it's such a simple question. Like, <laughs> it's a, a trick, trick question. question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a genuine, honest question. So, you know, that is an example, a very basic example of, right. of our automatic brain and action. So if we are willing to then consider and accept that we do make these decisions instinctively, automatically, we can then start to better understand these unconscious motivations both in ourselves and in our audiences. So going back to the question of nudge, so the term nudge was coined by uh, Richard Taller and Catherine Steen in their brilliant book, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth and Happiness. For those of you who've read it, you will know how amazing this book is. For those of you who haven't, go and go onto Amazon, buy this book right now, it's going to change your life. Mm. It is a book about behavioral insights and Behavioral insights and analysis unpack what works and doesn't, but critically, why? And I think as communicators, um, Mary Beth, and I'm hoping you'll agree, because of how busy we are and the diversity of our portfolios, we don't often stop and ask ourselves, is this working? Why is right. this working? Why is this not working? And what could make this work better? So a nudge model would then open the door to more alternative and creative options, which can be much more effective if used properly. Right. Well, and I wonder, it, it sounds like a very nuanced thing and that it's something where you have to be in the moment with your campaign or with your messaging or mm -hmm. with your call to action and how you are not only putting messages forward, but also listening and absorbing how yeah. the audience is perceiving the message, how they're reacting to it, and um, how you need to shepherd that process and that relationship Absolutely. building. And yeah. it makes mm -hmm. me wonder, do you think a lot of practitioners participate in nudge communications without realizing that they're what they're doing is a nudge strategy <laughs> or tactic? I think that's a really good question. You know, we all nudge and we nudge on a daily basis. And as communicators, I think we, we tend to use nudge quite a lot instinctively in our programs and in our campaigns. And we often don't know that's what we are doing. We call this a logical choice, but it is anything but. When, when we decide to, for example, embolden a sentence or use contrasting colors, when we're trying to make an action as easy as possible, by reducing the number of clicks required for your audience to get there, or when you use phrases like join your peers and do X, we are using that theory in our communications. Ah. So a behavioral approach, yeah, so a behavioral approach is applying that instinct, um, I suppose, in a more robust and a more consistent manner. 
um, as people, you know, we're busy, we have such limited attention. Our brains are ceaselessly inserting, overlaying, interpreting new information. We're retrieving our memories. We're making new memories. So we need to understand how to make our audiences pay attention to our messages so they can engage with it and then take action. I think that's the very critical thing about my series, about what do you want your audiences to do as a, as a result of this campaign. And, and I think, I hope that I've now convinced people that relying on logical persuasion alone is not enough. Right, right. And so, yeah. it's very compelling, I think. And I, I know that in the area, for example, of website development and digital development of digital communications technologies and tools, this whole area of user experience is very mm. much integrated into the work of developers and people who create mobile apps, for example, or websites yeah. or whatever, yeah. you know, you know, you're talking about. And so um, a lot of what you're talking about is, I think, very integrated to that same kind of thinking. How do we make Absolutely. the experience? Yeah. How do we make the user experience? And in this case, the experience with a campaign, the experience with a brand, the experience with yeah. you know, whatever the organization is that's sponsoring the communications effort. How do we make that relationship easy to engage in? compelling mm. and, and meaningful. yeah yeah and meaningful absolutely yeah, and meaningful. one one that they're mm. going to want to um continue and it it it'd be a positive experience so i'm really mm -hmm. interested how did you get in get involved initially in researching this area um yeah i guess that quite a lot and you know i don't really remember <laughs> i think it, was. it just evolved <laughs> It just, yeah, absolutely. I think it was the natural evolution of that sort of data-driven approach. Um, I've always been interested in psychology and human behavior. Um, and then I stumbled onto the book that I talked about earlier. And I was so hooked. I spent the next year basically just obsessing over it, devouring every bit of information I could find, uh, you know, reading all the books, joining the log groups, looking at abstracts and research papers, you know, as much information as I could possibly collate. Um, I, I tried to do it. And then I started applying those techniques to my own program incrementally. Right. And the results were just phenomenal. I mean, the, the transformational results. Once you start something like that, it can be a bit of a rabbit hole. So the more you do it, the more success that you see as a result of it, the more you want to build on of it. Of course, yes. I think the key is to do it. Yeah, and, yeah, and I think the key is to be quite sensible in how you incorporate Nudge into your program because if you've never done it before, probably jumping straight into a randomized controlled trial is, is not ideal because you've not done it before, but you might want to start with A-B testing and seeing, you know, looking at their data, seeing what the data tells you. So, you know, in the end, our campaigns were resulting in over 50% response rates, up to 90% on some patients, which was mad. And um, we were getting our audiences to pay attention. They were, most importantly, I think, they were responding to a call to action. And these were meaningful calls to action that were supporting the university on some very, very strategic aims and objectives. And because of our testing, we had so much more conviction in our tactics. When we rolled them out, we knew it would work because we tested it. We knew it would work. And so we were gaining this deep behavioral insight into our audiences that in return, our audiences were receiving content that was relevant and me meaningful to them. So it was win-win, really. So, you know, we were giving them 
a smart choice architecture to better their decision making. And in return, they were giving us their time, their attention, and their engagement. So it was a positive from both an audience perspective and a programmatic perspective. What a terrific process and a very symbiotic and organic kind of process. Mm. You know, in, in reviewing some of the online conversations about Nudge just in the past year, it seems that there is a more positive embrace of nudge communications for that very reason, because it's seen as less contrived, Mm. manipulative, or coercive in any way. It's more of a, as I said, organic, kind of natural and authentic way of interacting with audiences. So I guess the question Mm. then is, do you think that nudge is being accurately understood at present? And, and is it, does nudge merit the more positive reception that it appears to be receiving? Um, I do think there is a wider acceptance of nudge theory and digital science in general over recent years. Uh, I mean, you know, that thousand influence with Elementary that you spoke of earlier, I did two of those with Ella, and I think the, the feedback from uh, from the first to the second was very different. There was a lot around ethics in the first one I did. And then by the second one, people were more interested about the concept and the models and the techniques. I think there are there's a wider acceptance and uh, understanding that nudge can really boost programs significantly. And then there are these frameworks. Um, there are lots of frameworks in human science, but there are some simple frameworks like uh, like the East framework, which is developed by the Behavioral Insights team in the UK. Some some people know them as the nudge unit. So these frameworks make the application of behavioral science in communications very easy. So there is simply no reason why PR professionals shouldn't be using this approach more. My observation is that nudge is sometimes viewed as a superficial tactic within our sector. It is not. If it's used correctly, nudge theory and behavioral science techniques can be powerful and have significant change in business and policy. But the key to that is understanding and appreciation of the subject matter and education on how to use it and a consistency of approach in what is quite an experimental process especially when you're looking at things like A-B testing and conducting randomized controlled trials. But I have to say, like all science, nudge can be used for good and for bad. So we've seen nudge techniques used quite unethically here in the UK recently, and I'm sure this results of nudge being used unethically in the States and elsewhere. But there are so many other cases of nudge being used for good. In the UK, for example, behavioral science and nudge approaches have helped people make better decisions about their pensions, about organ donation, reducing plastic back usage, and so much more. But I think from an ethical perspective, that onus is on the communicator. Do you nudge for good or do you nudge for evil? I always remember it's a colors wise word, always nudge for good. Well, and I love that you've mentioned ethics here because I think that's an evergreen topic on so many issues in public relations and certainly best practice issues that are out there. And of course, we call this podcast misinterpreted because, you know, we here at Fletcher PR and Kelly and I very much see eye to eye on this. We really want to dispel a lot of the misinterpretations that are out there about marketing, Mm -hmm. communications, about PR. And of course, one of the big myths that we all continue to fight is that PR is about spin and propaganda and pulling a bunch of puppet strings to make mm. people think one thing when the facts reflect something else. And you know, to Kelly and me, and I know that we share this this mentality with you as Absolutely. well, that is not PR. That is something else entirely. And it's a very unethical bent that our team rejects. And I would hope that all of our global community 
of public relations professionals would reject that as well, because we need to be in the business of building relationships with people based on truthful information, honesty, trust. I know that's a huge part. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, and, and I think that with our shared organizational affiliation, that's a huge part of what PRCA is about. And that's a, mm -hmm. a big reason that we've become involved in that organization. So I think the education process that we foster must involve helping advocate for our profession's best and most ethical practices. So mm -hmm. you've mentioned ethics and, and making sure that nudge theory and, and tactics and strategies are within the context of an ethical framework. Mm -hmm. From your viewpoint, what can we as a global profession do to help educate our clients, the C-suite, boardrooms, more about positive, transparent, and really the authentic techniques like what nudge communications and nudge theory uh, puts forward? Mm. I think that's a really good question. I think it boils down to us as strategic communicators, earning that trust from our board by displaying strong leadership and understanding of the business and how communications contributes to bottom line, as well as a firm moral compass about what's ethical and not. It's so much easier to say yes to the higher-ups, even when matters are proposed are unethical, and it's so much tougher to say no. I get that. Right, right. But we've seen this, you know, we've seen this first time in the UK. So during a live leaders' debate at the general election last year, the Conservative Party, which is um, the party that, uh, that did end up winning the election, they changed their Twitter name as well as all their associated run names during a live leaders' debate. Yes. And they changed it to call themselves Fact Check UK. Yeah, we saw that, yes. Yeah. It's obviously manipulative right. and unethical. And, and, and you've seen that. We've faced a lot of backlash here and across the, across the pond. But there are lots comes professionals in that room, right? There's people there who are working in the Conservative Party campaign team who, for whatever reason, either participated actively to make that happen or participated passively to enable this unethical tactic to go ahead. And that is just wrong. It's hard to say no and stand up to senior leaders. I get that. But as PR professionals, we are the guardians of our organization's reputation. And it is our job to advise on what's right and what's not. And it does it does take strength, it does take confidence, but if we don't do it, who will? Right, right. I fully agree with that. We have to be forward-facing with our voice and with a strong stance about ethical communications because it does inherently impact how our brands, our clients, our employers are going to be perceived in the marketplace and how they're going to be able to build trust going forward. It has short-term implications, but also very long-term implications. Going back to the, the nudge concept piece, the idea of nudge appeals to me because it seems to be inherently process-driven, kind of to your earlier points about how you've integrated that into your work. Mm -hmm. This idea of nudging an audience toward understanding, uh, <clears throat> it being an incremental process over time and that it's undertaken mm -hmm. in a way that's informed and persuasive, but also ethical. You know, since mm -hmm. all processes take time and of course, all clients and employers always seem to be in a rush these days, um, what should be said about how much time a nudge initiative or campaign should be allocated mm. in order to be 
effective. I mean, one that incorporates those those tactics or in, integrates that in a um, a really in depth manner. Hmm. That's a good question because I do think that the perception it takes a lot of time might put people off from using these models. Mm-hmm. What I will say is that audience insight is key to match theory. So yes, it does take time, but equally as communicators, I understand the pressures that we all work through. Like you say, everything needs to happen yesterday. So that time can be subjective. So I've delivered campaigns with insights drawn from existing and proxy data and have launched a campaign within a few days. Equally, I've spent up to six months testing, refocusing, and readjusting messages before scaling up and launching campaigns. So it's not so much the time as it's the methodology. And I think it's important to understand what the target behavior is and undertake some sort of key audit to understand what the barriers are to those target behaviors. And then the key really is to run a randomized control trial or an RCT to test the interventions before scaling up. A lot of people, I, I've seen partially um, companies and uh, individuals who who feel they're using behavioral science and much theory, but they're sort of at the tail end of that spectrum where they're applying interventions without necessarily doing the research mm. that's required to ensure that those interventions are meaningful. Right. So as with everything in communications, it can be delivered in a few days to a few months, depending on what we want to achieve. Right. And I I, I fully agree with this idea that um, I think that clients sometimes when they, they come to the table with a challenge or an opportunity that they want to you know implement public relations as part of the solution, they have to have a realistic expectation that relationships cannot be, true relationships cannot just be built overnight. They have to be fostered and, and cultivated. And yet again, I just think that nudge theory appeals to me because it, it's just this idea of cultivating that in a very authentic way. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love to uh, mm-hmm. shift the conversation just a little bit on the topic of metrics. There was a recent Harvard Business Review article in the September-October 2019 print edition, and Kelly had actually sent that over to me. And we both had a conversation about it. It was part of what prompted us to want to reach out to you, mm-hmm. Shy, for this interview. The article was entitled, yeah. Don't Let Metrics Undermine Your Business. Yes, I've read this article. <laughs> yeah. It was authored by Michael Harris, a doctoral student at the University of North Carolina, and uh, Professor Bill Taylor of Brigham Young University. Mm-hmm. And uh, that title really caught my attention. In public relations, our profession has historically, I think, struggled with achieving Mm. resonance and credibility with senior management teams sometimes Mm. to adequately fund and resource the work that we do. And I think Mm. that's because measuring the impact of brand reputation and the monetary value Mm. of communications has always proven difficult. So, Shai, when when it comes to measuring PR's effectiveness to the satisfaction of some clients, I'd love to get your sense on what the pitfalls and what the stumbling blocks are, especially now that you've started your own consulting practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're right when you say that our profession has struggled with achieving resonance and credibility with senior management teams. Um, I'd ask why historically. I think this is the case even today. I mean, unless we look to connect our tactics with strategy and our strategy with organizational objectives, coupled with effective measurement and evaluation, we will never be able to prove our value to senior management teams. And this is something I'm quite passionate about. You know, I do lecture at Cardiff University. I tell my students that 
it's easy to be tactical because you know it's creative and it's uh, it's not it doesn't have a lot of accountability. <laughs> it's hard to be strategic. But if you want that pay rise, you know, if you want to prove your value, if you want a seat at that table, that's not going to come in. You know, it's not going to fall in your lap. Right. It has to be earned, and it has to be earned by being strategic and understanding what the business is. PR's effectiveness is about helping uh, a client reach certain tangible goals. Right. And in order to know how we get there, we need to then embrace data. So the way I see it, data helps us convey our narrative in an efficient and precise manner that leaves no room to view PR as a willy function. You know, what we do is strategic. It does deserve the recognition and respect. So as practitioners, to be able to do that, we need to know where we want to get to. And by that, I mean, we need to have smart objectives to start with, whether we're delivering a program or a campaign. Right. We need to understand our audiences deeply. And I do that by using data and behavioral science. And we need to be able to evaluate the impact of our work effectively using the right measures. So we can stand proud and call ourselves a strategic function. And that's how we add value to organizations. So... It's not so much about too many metrics, I don't think. I think it's about focusing on the right metrics. It's about understanding numbers, whether they're good numbers or bad numbers, and understanding the numbers have a part to play in bettering and informing future strategy. Right. I, I fully agree with that approach of starting with the end game in mind. And that mm. that is one of the key questions that I know that we ask clients when we embark on a new communications initiative. You know, what is your overarching business goal that this communications effort needs to accomplish? How are you going to measure that? What does success look like from your vantage point? Yeah. And how does that need to be proven not only to you as a CEO or whomever we're working with? It could be a marketing director or, you know, but other members of their team that they're trying to also mm -hmm. achieve resonance with as well. And so very often uh, the ones that give the most metrics pushback to the PR function are those who come from a finance or accounting background who are very yeah. much more um, accustomed to quantifying value in very yeah. mm -hmm. hard and fast dollars and cents or, you know, pounds, I guess, over in the UK. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that monetary yeah. metric. And so, you know, but I do think that in PR, because of all of these digital communications tools that we now have at our disposal, and of course, all of them have quantitative metrics built into the back end of them where you can you can quantify so many aspects of mm -hmm. digital engagement, which is fantastic. The, I think the the risk that we run is getting into just a big data dump, if, if you will, mm -hmm. you know, just having so mm -hmm. many metrics, so many numbers, and just not taking the required time to put meaning yeah. behind that in a, in a meaningful way relative to relationship building. Yeah. So... Yeah, I think that gets into the that, that whole idea behind the Harvard Business Review article, don't let metrics undermine your business, you know, not getting so mired down into metrics mm. that don't, you know, where we're not extracting real meaning. What What are your thoughts on that, yeah. Shai? Yeah, I think, you know, you're totally right. It can be a rabbit hole. And therefore, it's really important to understand, you know, what are the right metrics. Right. The metrics I feel that we should be focused on as PR professionals is outcomes. What happened as a result of the campaign you ran? 
did it lead to more sales? Did it lead to more leads generated? Did you recruit as many people that you set out to initiate? Did you change your audience's behavior? Are they tangibly doing something different as a result of your communications? So we should always be asking ourselves the so what question. So what happened as a result of my campaign? So what happened as a result of my program? Unfortunately, Mary, that you know, PR pros tend to focus more on outputs and outtakes than meaningful outcomes. Right. So you get bogged down then by your reach and your impressions and your, you know, old click-throughs and opens and all of that, which is great. And it's important to keep track of the of the number of press releases you sent and the amount of coverage you received or that social media research that you had. But if it does not audience do something meaningful, if it does not make your audiences take action in a meaningful way, if they don't set if they don't do or you set out to do it at the start, it does not it really doesn't matter. So focus on outcomes of output is what sets, I think, PR professionals apart. Those who are strategic will always ask for what. Right. Well, and that Harvard Business Review article also focused from a case study standpoint on the Wells Fargo issue. And I'm not sure in the UK how much Wells Fargo and that whole case study has been covered. I've written a couple of different pieces about it. But of course, Wells Fargo is one of the largest banking institutions historically in the United States went through a major ethics crisis. Mm. And it's still unfolding, actually, here in the United States, where the bank had opened a lot of fake customer accounts strictly for the purpose of cross-selling and getting cross-selling metrics up um, and for, it's a very complicated issue. Um, But they talked in that article about how Wells Fargo potentially had this over-reliance on metrics and it was sort of a strategy Mm. gone wrong issue. I found it interesting that in not one place in the Harvard Business Review article was the word ethics mentioned. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I found that to be very significant in light of just how far off course Wells Fargo ventured away from a business mm. ethic of placing customers' best interests as a genuine priority. So I guess my question on that on that point is where should ethics fit into the strategy picture where the metrics fall short? Because metrics aren't in, inherently ethics driven at all. No, not at all. I mean, metrics are numbers, right? I mean, we've talked about this earlier. The onus is on us. Having an ethical approach is critical for any strategic communicator or public relations professional. I think we all agree, you, me, um, Kelly, we all agree that that is the way forward. As PR practitioners, we are the guardians, as I said, of our organization's reputation. And it is so vital that we take this role seriously. And that's why I think membership to sector bodies such as the PRCA and the CIPR is so important. Because when you become a member of either of these bodies, you sign up to a code of conduct. And ethics really should be at the front and center of whatever we do 24 7. Right. So, for example, at the PRCA, we uh, recently agreed at Council, at last night actually, in London, that we will be focusing more energy on ethics this year. So, for example, is our code fit for purpose? How do we work with other organizations? How can we encourage more PR practitioners to join membership bodies and be accountable for their actions? So I think it's that coming together and that awakening that this is something we have to take very seriously. And it is not the same as metrics. And always being ethics-driven in our approach is critical for our profession being 
viewed as the kind of profession we wanted to be viewed as. Right. And I join you in being very enthusiastic about PRCA's focus on ethics this year. Of course, they've always had such a fantastic focus on that area. They are the organization, after all, that expelled Bell Pottinger, and that was such a huge global industry case study um, on the on the matter of ethical compliance. So, um, yeah. I, yeah, I join you in being very excited about the year to come in terms of how that plays out and how you know, we as a profession with PRCA helping lead the way on that, how we advocate for ethics going forward. Well, you know, we're coming to the end of the chat, Shai, and I just wanted to ask one final set of questions. And this is sort of a summary kind of question, I suppose. If public relations professionals could focus on three things when seeking to change human behavior through their public relations research, or whether it's also the strategies, the action plans, what would those three things be to change human behavior? Um, I think the first thing is to understand what you're trying to achieve, if I haven't uh, reinforced that enough right, today. Right. Um, it's really important to know what your organizational goals are. So when you have smart objectives, you can then start to work out your behavioral objectives. So if you need to get 50 people to an event, what are the target behaviors and actions that you need to encourage? Or if you scale up, if you need to halve childhood obesity, what are the desired behaviors and actions you need to foster in your audiences? So that's first. And I think secondly, using a data-driven approach to audience analysis. Who are your stakeholders? How are they currently interacting with you, with your program, and with your organization? Trust the data instead of anecdotal evidence. And use this data to set baselines so you can better observe and monitor campaigns. And then finally, test. Always test anything, test interventions that you apply to your program. The key to using behavioral science and necessary is to test, learn, and adapt. So if we test, we can tell what works and what doesn't, and then we can make informed choices about scaling up. Absolutely. Well, I, I think those are great observations and, and ones that all of us should be integrating into our work. And I guess I told a fib earlier when I said that I was only asking you that as a final question. I do have one other question. When are we going to get you oh, over here yes. to the U.S. for a visit? Because <laughs> we would love to have you here. In a heartbeat. Send me the tickets and I'll be there. <laughs> right. I would love to be there. I would love to be there. And I'm really hopeful that we can make that happen. I'd love to meet both PRC and non-PRCA PR professionals in the U.S. and you know have a chat about a lot of uh, these topics that we've been talking about today. Well, we would love to have you over here at some point. Of course, uh, I'm hoping to make it back over to the United Kingdom uh, this summer, well, actually. Yeah, so, I mean, hopefully our paths will directly cross there. That'd be amazing. It'd be great to finally meet you, Mary Beth. Oh, thank fantastic. you. And thank you. You've got a whole community of practitioners waiting to welcome you. Oh, thank you. And I have felt that welcome even across the many miles here. But thank you so much, Shai. Um, Kelly, who is was not able to join us today, but she sends her best regards. We both do appreciate your joining us. And to our listeners, be sure to follow Shione Lynn on Twitter handle, Shione S. Lynn, and that's S-H-A-Y-O-N-I-S-L-Y-N-N. And you can also connect with her on LinkedIn. Thank you so much. And if you want to follow my uh, my consultancy, it's uh, at L-Y-N-N. 
PRLTD on Twitter. Perfect, perfect. We need to follow both because I, I've noticed that um, you are really good about updating your followers about a lot of the different projects that you're working on and mm. a lot of the research that you're doing. So I know that all of our listeners would benefit a great deal from seeing that. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on Ms. Interpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 